Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. I'm Karen. And I'm Allison. And we're two new librarians slash archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording today on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, we're talking to Krista McCracken, who is the archive supervisor at Algoma University's Arthur A. Wishart Library and Shingwalk Residential School Center in Bawating, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Métis people. We were first introduced to Krista's work way back in our archival core courses when we read their piece, Community Archival Practice, Indigenous Grassroots Collaboration at the Shingwalk Residential School Center. Krista's training is in public history, and they're an editor for ActiveHistory.ca, the host of the podcast Historical Reminiscence, a board member for the National Council on Public History, and a member of the Steering Committee on Canada's Archives in response to the report on the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force. We are so grateful that Krista made the time to talk to us today about their work. Welcome, Krista, to Organizing Ideas. There are so many things we want to talk to you about, but before we dive into all the different kinds of projects and and work that you do, can you tell us a bit about how you ended up working in archives and what drew you to this work or what draws you to this kind of work? Yeah, I kind of like to say that I ended up as a archivist accidentally. I went into public history and really thought I was going to end up in a museum. And I've been working in the same archival space for about 10 years now. So firmly identify as both a archivist and a public historian. But really what draws me to this work is a desire to help community to really focus on access to historical information And really what motivates me day to day is seeing the connections that people interacting with the past and documentary heritage can really bring and just how powerful that can be. What is public history? Yeah, um, (laughs) that is a good question. And every public historian you ask will probably have a different answer. And I'd say it is a term that actually has much more popularity in the United States than in Canada. Um, But it essentially is history that is outside of the classroom. It's history that is responsive. It's accessible to the public. It's often reflecting on current events. It's community-oriented in many ways. In my mind, kind of the main tenant of my practice is it's history that's accessible to the general public and to community. That being said, um, a lot of public historians work in a whole range of places, including archives, and some work in museums, some work for the government, some work in heritage sites. So you can find a public historian in anywhere there's history. I'd also say that, you know, public historian training often includes parts of archival studies training and parts of museum studies training. It's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. 
Do you notice frictions between the way that you were trained and the way that archivists you work with who did a more archival studies kind of degree or program? Um, Think about things or approach work? or There might be different approaches. Um, I think part of it is learning to make sure that you're speaking the same language. Often you're, you both want the same thing, but you might be using a different word to describe it. Um, I think there's more tension in the archival field um, in my approach to how I handle archives in a community oriented way that Mm -hmm. that might be from my public history training, but that also might be because I work in a community archives. So it's hard to say if that tension is actually from public history or if it's from the community focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, a thing that's come up a few times on the podcast from our own experiences and people that we've talked to is a, that at least at UBC where, where we both studied the archival studies program doesn't focus very much on community archives. And so the training doesn't feel like it prepares people particularly well for working in that context but it sounds like a public history degree is maybe more focused on that as one among many settings yeah I think there's definitely skills in a public history degree that lend themselves very well to community archives because the focus is often on working with community stakeholders and that's something that's directly transferable to a community archive setting, which you sometimes don't get in an archival studies program. You might get the theory behind it, but actually being amongst and working with community is very different than what you might read in a book. Mm-hmm. So then maybe in relation to archives, like how did, like how how is that? What are maybe some of the like major differences between then like public history archives? How do we define archives then? Yeah. Oh, that's a big question. And and I'm also curious, like, maybe what did you think archives are? Like, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. And I think that was one of the things when I went into public history that maybe that's why I, I thought I'll end up in a museum is because archives seemed like this very nebulous thing. I'd been to an archive once in undergrad and it was okay. But it wasn't something that got me like super excited, whereas I volunteered at a museum and, you know, getting to work with the collection and working with another group of volunteers was really enjoyable. And I guess I didn't expect that to be replicated in an archive. But I think there are certain parts of both of those experiences that are very similar. This idea of making the past Uh, accessible to the public is often a tenant of both public history and archives. Likewise, preserving the past is part of that. Um, I think there's often just different approaches to how that is done. Um, And so a lot of my work as someone who sits kind of at the intersection of archival studies and public history is kind of thinking of ways that I can bring things from the archives out of the archives be that through exhibitions, through digitization, or a lot of, you know, just people dropping in and how can I make the archive accessible to them in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you also do a lot of really public facing work in terms of making, it seems to me, accessible uh, your process, like how you actually do your work, not just the records or materials that you that live in the archives that where you work, you've got your blog and your podcast and all this kind of different public-facing stuff, social media. What inspired you to share the work that you do, like that kind of behind-the-scenes look? So initially, the blog was actually like a class 
project and I never let it die. Um, So that's, it's been in existence since about 2009, which is Mm kind of scary that it's been going that long. (laughs) I think a lot of the motivation is though that because archival work often happens behind the scenes, it tends to get minimized and people don't value labor they can't see quite often. So I think there is a lot to be said for saying, this is what I'm doing. It is valuable because of this. Also, I think for me, sharing process, uh, either writing it down or speaking about it, that actually helps me get through some like problems I might be trying to sort out. Or if I'm working on an idea, I might write a blog post that then later will end up you know, as a more formally written thing, but the blog helps me kind of sort those idea out, ideas out in their early stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that with the podcast too. People will come and talk to me about a thing, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's so weird. Someone listened to this, but then we'll have <laughs> a really nice conversation about you know some topic that otherwise they how would they have ever known that's what you know we were thinking about or yeah. yeah. What kind of responses do do you um, usually get to the to your blog and podcast? The podcast tends to be people who I would never expect listen to it, to listen to it, which is kind of fun. Likewise, the blog, some people it's occasionally like, oh, I read your blog. I'd say my work with activehistory.ca, that mm-hmm. tends to be the one that I get more responses from just as a higher readership. Also, um, that blog really reaches more academic historians which aren't folks that I necessarily would interact with on a daily basis. So when I'm you know, out at a conference or just at a larger industry event, making those connections, the blog has really facilitated that in ways that I had never kind of foreseen. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I find even reading like academic articles when they talk about the process of like, I went to the library or the archives to look for this thing and then it turned out um you know didn't go the way they planned and then now here's the rest of the research article that's really interesting for me to read you know as a reader but also as a student learning about how to do research it's also very helpful to know that you know you don't just go to the library and then it everything works out you have your paper (laughs) it's it's great to know and and to have in such a like a public or less such an official like a journal article how things get done Yeah. No, I would totally agree. Like, and there's something to be said for sharing failure because we Mm -hmm. learn from failure, but also everybody experiences failure and we don't talk about it a lot. So I think, you know, sharing that on social media or a blog can be a way to build a community that's hopefully supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. Do you have advice for us as new podcasters? (laughs) Um. I'd say my biggest thing is have fun. Uh, my blo- my podcast is very much, it's, you know, work of joy. I do it as a hobby. And, uh, and so I found the first year I heavily scheduled and had a new episode almost every week. And then I was like, I am getting exhausted. I need to scale this back. And so now it's not as rigid and that works for me. But I think it's finding the groove that works for you and enjoy mm-hmm. it. Fair enough. We were just talking about, <laughs> are we going to burn ourselves out doing an episode every week? But we'll find we'll out. See. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's two of you. So, you know, yeah, split the work. Yeah. yeah. And that's part of, that's part of why we decided to, 
do this together too. It's a fun chance to hang out and talk about yeah. stuff. And we've done a lot of group projects together. So I think we know how each other work. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's awesome. So do you want to tell us a bit about your day job? What do you do at Algoma University in the Shanghua Residential School Center? Yeah, so I am the archivist as well as the researcher and curator for the Shanghua Residential School Center. So Algoma University is one of the only universities located in a former residential school building. And the center that I work in was really founded by the residential school survivor community as a way to make sure that their experiences were being told and preserved. The Shanghua Residential School operated uh, on the site in Sault Ste. Marie until 1970, and Algoma moved in in 1971. So, you know, less than six months after the residential school had closed, there was then a university in that space. But really, if you had of talked with people in the mid-70s and said, oh, this is a really old building. You know, what was it before it was a university? No one would have said it was a residential school. There was a lot of intentional forgetting going on, institutional forgetting, and just not talking about that past. So it really was when the survivors came together in 1981 that they were the ones advocating for this history to be preserved and told and to make sure that the university honored this history and thought about its responsibility to it. And so the work that I do is to care for the archival collection in the center, but also to facilitate that public outreach. So we do a lot of educational work and exhibit development as well. And do you teach also? Sometimes. <laughs> um, so I'm not teaching right now, but I have uh, taught as part-time faculty in the history department. Mm, okay. So I've taught a public history course as well as two archival studies courses and served as a thesis supervisor as well. Your face, Karen. <laughs> manage that time. <laughs> we, we've talked a lot about community-led work and Jorge, who was the first one on our podcast to talk about it, you know, really emphasized how it's different for everyone. Could you talk about the kinds of communities that you work with, that, you know, you prioritize, and what does that mean in practice for you? Yeah. So because the center was founded by residential school survivors, our mandate is to serve them first and foremost. And that means not only people who attended the residential school, but also their families. But we also work a lot with non-Indigenous folks to teach them about residential schools. Community-led work, though, in terms of my context in the Shanghua Residential School Center, I think this was one of the biggest learning curves when I first started at the SRSC. So... You know, you come out of grad school or, you know, whatever program you're in and going, I know a bunch of things. I have read a bunch of things and I know how, you know, it kind of works. And then going into a community archive space and learning that maybe those things that I learned weren't applicable in any way, shape or form. So part of that is the archival theory I learned didn't necessarily apply to a community-driven archive that 
needs to shift colonial narratives, Mm -hmm. but also realizing that what I learned about residential schools didn't compare in any way, shape or form to working with residential school survivors on a daily basis. So definitely a learning curve. And I think a lot of that is listening and knowing you're going to screw up inevitably, but learning from those mistakes to do better. It, I feel like I'm, I'm hearing and also noticing um, a lot about how the, the stuff we learn in school just isn't, doesn't seem to either prepare or isn't quite adequate for how archives and how communities are operating outside of school, like quote unquote in the mm-hmm. real world. Why <laughs> and how can we make this better? Yeah, um, they're not like everybody's school experience is going to be different. I'd just say in my context, I didn't learn anything about indigenous governed centers, indigenous governed archives, or really. Yeah, I learned that, you know, RAD and how archives are organized is colonial, but I didn't really understand the implications of that. And so when thinking through how an archive can best serve a community and the survivors that I worked with had really expressed an interest in what they were calling professionalizing the archive. And that meant you know, trying to organize it in a way that was more accessible, meeting, you know, industry standards for care, but wanting to make sure that that survivor voice was still at the forefront. And to be honest, the structure of Respect Days Fall, as well as the concept of provenance and how things should be organized in an archive really didn't work for the residential school survivor community. It meant that if we were following Western archival standards, things would be organized by who created them, which was often the staff of the residential school or the church groups, which organizing things in that way could be profoundly traumatic in some cases, and it really wouldn't facilitate access. Um, And so I think there's a couple of reasons why these conversations maybe aren't happening at, you know, education uh, or at the school level. Part of it is the archival community as a whole is still really struggling with how this is impacting them, particularly in respect to Indigenous records. There has been movement in Canada, but there's still a lot of work to do. Say, likewise, community archives are often... um, run by the community themselves and they're not the folks teaching in classes so not getting their experiences in the classroom I think is another piece. Are there techniques you use or ways you teach either staff that you're training or when you do teach classes to try and I don't know like shift that for your students? Yeah so when training new staff definitely we have like our own handbook and orientation process. And it's really focused on learning about the history of the residential school and about internal archival practices. I mean, they still have to read about RAD and a bunch of other archival things, but um, it's really the, the weight is placed on survivor narratives and sitting down with um, a survivor, intergenerational survivor, before they kind of dig in 
to the records to provide that context about how the archive was started from someone who was involved in it. Really trying to make sure that if I am teaching an introduction to archival studies course, which is one that I have taught, is making sure that I'm balancing what information I'm sharing in the classroom. And I did have at least a couple weeks dedicated to community archives. So part of that balance piece is just when I was looking for like readings for the class, not everything was archival theory. Some of it was written by people like So Todd, who have reflected on their experiences in archives. So another thing we wanted to ask you about, which I think this kind of bleeds into a bit, is um, the Steering Committee on Canada's Archives with the response to the report on the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force, which is such the a longest long- name ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, where um, the emphasis in this name? I don't know. But anyway. So as a committee, we tend to refer to it as the TRC Task Force, okay. just as a shorthand. Yeah, because it is so long. <laughs> Thank you. So do you want to tell us a bit about this committee? What's its purpose and when was it created and what do you, what do you what do you do as part of it? Yeah. So this committee kind of came out of the TRC's calls to action. Uh, as you might be aware, probably are aware, there was a number of calls to action that were explicitly targeting archives in Canada. So both Library and Archives Canada as well as the archival professional community and really specific calls to make sure that archives are working with Indigenous communities and that records connected to residential schools are being shared with community appropriately. And so this task force was kind of set out in response to that. The main goal of the committee is to create a set of recommendations that could be implemented across Canada for guidelines for working with Indigenous communities. So if you think about the United States and the protocols for Native American archival materials, creating kind of a comparable Canadian-focused set of protocols or recommendations. Um, And the committee is comprised of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous archivists and knowledge holders, really with the idea that the non-Indigenous folks would do some of the grunt work to make the heavy lifting a bit easier. So have you worked on a particular part of it, Lisa? Yeah, um, so the committee's work has kind of been divided in a couple different phases. The initial phase, it consisted of a survey that went out to Canadian archivists and Canadian archival institutions. And actually the results of that are available on the steering committee's website. Uh, The next phase involved actually doing like informal interviews with Indigenous archivists and record keepers. And so I worked with a couple of my colleagues from the Northern Ontario region to reach out and talk to folks who are in positions in either the First Nation community or a cultural center um, to get their thoughts on relationships with the archival community as a whole in Canada and how they see this relationship either maybe improving or ways that it could be changed or facilitating better access to Indigenous archival material that's maybe held in mainstream repositories. And the last piece that we're working on right now is those recommendations 
and we have a draft and are slowly trying to, you know, work that into a shape that can be shared with everybody. It's a pretty monumental task. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it's a little daunting. And I'm trying to think of how long this has been going on, but it's been multiple years at this mm-hmm. point. We were lucky to receive a Shirk Insight grant to help fund some of this work, particularly to bring people together to talk about the work, and then hopefully uh, to facilitate some workshops once the the recommendations are completed that can be used to help with implementation across the country. So I think that's, for me personally anyways, that's kind of my greatest fear around this process is that say we create this thing and then nothing happens with it. So for example, like in the United States with the, um, the protocols there, like they were out for almost a decade before the Society of American Archivists endorsed them and they still haven't been endorsed by ALA. Um, and so it's like, hopefully when they're released in Canada, there will be uptake of them, but you know, I kind of have that fear that you see things like the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People from, you know, over a decade or multiple decades ago now that there was calls for change to archives then and nothing was done. So hopefully we're at a better moment. Why, why do you think it's so, why is change so slow to happen in archives? <laughs> you talked about this, you know, in classes, like change is slow, but why is that? And as a, like, as a student, it's, it's hard to like, one, understand what is archival studies? What is archival theory? What am I supposed to do as an archivist? And then to kind of see all of these things, you know, the work is being done, the work is there. Yeah. Why is it so hard to, to implement? I think that's a really good question. I think part of it is looking at, say, provincial archival organizations that had their funding drastically slashed, and many of them lost staff as part of that process. So to facilitate things at the regional level is really difficult. Likewise, you have such a range of archives across this country. Like you have Library and Archives Canada, that's this massive institution, everything down to the archive that is staffed by a volunteer one day a month. And so facilitating change across all those different organizations that have very different needs and serve very different communities is tricky. But I also think that certain changes have been slow because there's a lot of resistance to changing power structures. And particularly when you're talking about um, changing how Indigenous records are accessed, described, and cared for, that's a conversation about power and colonialism. And that's an uncomfortable conversation for many people, but it's a really important conversation. But I think there's been some resistance to having that change happen. Since your committee has started your work, have you seen changes? Like, are people going ahead with initiatives, you know, before the recommendations come out that that you think are helpful or, or worth learning from for other folks? Yeah. So I actually wrote an article for the Canadian Historical Review that was kind of looking at some of the changes that have happened in archives since the TRC report. And... I found actually most of the change was happening at those institutional levels. And there are some institutions that are doing really fantastic work that are doing, say, like redescription 
uh, projects that are engaging community, either to identify people in photos, but also to use Indigenous languages to remove or annotate really racist um, comments that were on the original photos, things like that, um, or implementing uh, different forms of arrangement and description for Indigenous records. But for the most part, those are happening almost in silos across the country. And they're really amazing innovations. Um, I would just love to see it happening across more institutions or maybe more guidelines for the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. That being said, I do recognize that, you know, every Indigenous community is unique and has its own circumstance around it. Likewise, every archive is a little bit different. So like one set of recommendations isn't going to be a one size fits all solution. But it would be nice to see some of those bigger players coming on board, um, endorsing, you know, a change of practice. Can you give us a preview of any things that you think might be in the recommendations? Are you allowed to talk about them before they come out? (laughs) So I think some of it is we did do a pretty large lit review of existing community protocols and existing recommendations from other colonial countries. So looking um, very much at the protocols from the United States, but as well as New Zealand. And I think you could see some similar things from those protocols in ours. Definitely, I think as a guiding principle, like thinking about OCAP, like ownership, control, access, and possession in relation to uh, Indigenous archives or records that speak about Indigenous peoples is something that I know uh, for me and a few other folks that was kind of a guiding principle as we were writing certain sections. So you might see bits of that. We'll have to look forward to seeing them when they come out. (laughs) Do you have any other questions? Well, something we we were like bouncing back and forth this afternoon was asking you about like really specific things that you've written or worked on, which we oh, yeah. away from because we were like, oh, maybe some like broader overarching yeah. things. But um, since we have a bit of time, there is one that I would like to ask you about if you're going to talk about it, which is that I read your article recently about um, embroidery and needlepoint. Oh, yeah. And I found it really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you wanted to, like, give a really short summary about it for people who might also find that interesting and maybe haven't read it yet. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So that one, actually, I really love the venue that it was published in as well. It's in Contingent Magazine, which really supports uh, non-tenure track historians or folks who identify as historians who work outside of, like, a a tenured position. Um, And everybody gets paid for their work as well as the editors get paid, um, which is awesome and unusual in the history field. So uh, yeah, and they're just a great magazine. But the piece that I wrote is really looking at kind of the history of embroidery as a form of protest and feminist uh, resistance. Uh, I learned how to embroider about two years ago now. And I love embroidering things with swear words on them and uh, (laughs) that are gender affirming, uh, body affirming and just, yeah, positive, but also a little edgy. And then, you know, surrounding them with nice, pretty flowers that (laughs) contrast. Um, 
But as someone who loves history and archives, I also, you know, got the urge to look up uh, where have has embroidery been found in the past. And I think it's a really neat example of it being kind of a a record of the past of people you often don't see in archives. So some of the examples in the piece show like samplers that were stitched by women who there's no archival records of, but there's this one piece of embroidery that maybe tells a little bit of their life. I think that's just so beautiful and so empowering in certain ways. So yeah, I, it's kind of an intersection of my public history interest and my hobby of embroidery. I also embroider things with archival slogans on them. Um, I've done a few like archives are not neutral embroidery pieces as well as uh, no metadata, no future. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the archivist serenity prayer um, but it's like a meme that uh, an archivist from the U.S. created, but I have stitched that as well. Yeah, it's kind of like give me the funding to process the backlog type thing. It's yeah, adorable. <laughs> we'll find a picture of yeah. it to put up with the other Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for sharing about that. It was, yeah, it was a, the, yeah, the article I felt like, I mean, a lot of your writing does this, but I felt like that article really conveyed like your joy from that from that hobby, but also the importance of understanding the context of things we do or interact with. And I think that's a really powerful thing about public history work or archives. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It all tells stories and it's all tied to somebody's life in some way, shape or form. And it's that tie or kinship tie that is so important. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If folks want to reach you online or find your podcast or your blog, where where should they go? My website is kristamccracken.ca and it has the blog on it as well as links to the podcast. And on Twitter, I'm at Krista McCracken. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no thanks, Krista. We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That's organizing with a Z, not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com. Bye!